This is episode 45 of the Globetrotter Lounge podcast. Welcome to the Globetrotter Lounge podcast, conversations with women who have found creative ways to travel more. I'm your host, Jet Set Lizette, and I travel more by earning and maintaining over 1 million airline miles and hotel points. So far, I've saved $105,000 in travel costs. I love talking to other women who have also made travel a priority and sharing their creativity, insights, and travel resources with you. And I'm super excited to be back for season three of the podcast, and I have a great list of guests lined up for you. I have to admit, it does feel different this time, not just because I've decided to reduce the number of episodes this season, but I also am launching in the middle of a global health crisis. I originally was grappling a bit with doing that because it just felt a little weird to launch a third season during a pandemic where we can't travel at all. But after thinking about it, after talking to some friends, after kind of putting some things out on social media and hearing back from listeners, I decided that I should just go ahead, forge ahead as planned, that everybody still needs stories, travel inspiration, and we're all hoping to travel again sometime. We just don't know when. So I'm glad I decided to move forward. And in fact, I've got a great opening guest that really dropped into my lap I'm truly excited to share her story and her trajectory, which definitely seems timely right now. So today I'm talking with Anjali Desai, an avid traveler and global health professional. She's currently the director of strategy at Panorama, an action tank focused on solving global pressing problems, including outbreak preparedness and addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. She also has a goal of experiencing 50 countries before the age of 50, and she's already currently at 40 countries. Anjali's going to be talking today about her upbringing in Zambia and what sparked her love of travel, how she got interested in pursuing a global health career, where her work and studies have taken her around the world, and her current work in the arena of outbreak preparedness and addressing the current pandemic. But before we dig in, I want to mention that this season is being sponsored by one of my favorite companies, Waypoint Goods. They are the creators of a beautiful travel scarf. I have a couple of them myself with a hidden zipper pocket. It's super functional for storing valuables like passport, phone, keys, and really it looks like wearable art designed after different cities around the world. They also create a new travel journal with great daily journal entry prompts that help you capture the most important parts of your trip without being bogged down by having to write eloquent memoirs, you know, go on and on. And they also have a bunch of new accessories that are going to be coming out this year. So along the way this season, you'll be hearing about those. I really can't wait. Best of all, Waypoint Goods offers a special discount to Globetrotter Lounge listeners. You simply go to waypointgoods.com and enter Jet Set at checkout and you'll get 15% off. So be sure to check them out. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Anjali. Okay, well, welcome to the Globetrotter Lounge, Anjali. It's great to have you here with me today. Thanks, Lizette. I'm happy to be here. I love talking about travel, so looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I can't wait. And, you know, I just want to say I love it that we 
have a friend in common who I feel like it's funny because our friend that we have in common is one of those people who everybody swears they must be like, he's my best friend or whatever. Like, you know, he's the kind of person that everybody gets really close to. Yes. And I feel like he also just knows everyone and is such an amazing connector of people and bringing together people. And so I love meeting people through him because I instantly adore them and trust them, especially if he does. I know. Shout out to Bertram. We love you. (laughs) Yes. I second that. So I love it that we have that in common. Makes us feel like kind of extended family or something. Exactly. And he was the one who said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got to have her on the show. Like you guys met once at my party at the cafe or whatever. And I was like, (laughs) we did? Oh, yeah. You know, so I'm so glad he said that. So let's just start at the beginning. Let's before we get like all into what you do for work with with global health and all of that. Let's start off with your childhood and what you think may have led to your love of travel. Sure. So I am Indian, but was born and raised in Zambia and now live in the U.S. So I think for me, I've had multiple influences in my life that have really inspired me to continue to travel. I think one is just my family and my family's history. So my grandfather moved from Gujarat, India to Zambia when he was 17. So this was about over 80 years ago. Wow. And he had a family member there and just wanted a change of scenery. My mom in the late 1970s had an arranged marriage, moved from Bombay, India to Zambia as well, sight unseen. And in the 2000s, I moved from Zambia to Seattle, sight unseen, because I was just craving adventure. And I had the opportunity and the immense privilege to be able to come to the U.S. to study and wanted to go to the furthest place away from home. (laughs) And so I think those experiences and just that sense of adventure has always fueled me. I think a second influence has always been TV and books and movies and this idea that the world is so big and interesting. Why not go see it and explore? So I think those two elements for me have just fueled me in wanting to just connect with different cultures. I also love food. And so for me, it's it's my happy place. Mm-hmm. I relate. And you actually told me when we were chatting on the phone the other day that you have a goal now of reaching 50 countries by the time you're 50. So obviously you, I think you're already at 40. I think you said in your bio. So I was like, well, yeah, you are on your way. I mean, you're almost there. Yes, that's correct. And I've had, I've always sought out experiences or opportunities to do that. Um, And that comes with a lot of privilege and access. But when I was studying at the University of Washington here in Seattle, did a number of study abroad programs and actually found that it was financially more, it was easier to do that than actually stay in an expensive city and go to school, so why not? But then also through my work in public and global health, have had a lot of opportunities to travel. So that's really helped get to the 40 mark that I'm in. And for me, I really want to try experience the places that I'm in beyond ticking through a list, because I think it can be easy to do that, but really want to count the countries where I've been able to spend time as part of that. Right. So it's not just like, yeah, I dropped in for a conference. 
Uh, I was there two days and I left. You're trying to also experience where you are. Exactly. So speaking about your work, what sparked your interest in global health? How did this start, this whole career path? What led you to this arena? Yeah, so growing up in Zambia and and specifically in Lusaka, I saw just the inequities that existed in country. I come from a middle-class family that had a lot of access and privilege. So I got to go to a private school, an international school, got exposed to a variety of cultures and nationalities while being there, but then saw down the street or down the road, there was just so much poverty that existed. And I remember a representative from the World Food Program coming to our school to speak to us. We must have been 11 or 12 and asked, hey, do you think there's enough food in the world to feed everyone? And I think in my young 11-year-old mind, I thought, of course not, then everyone else would be fed, right? And that conversation and that experience really highlighted the gross inequities that exist in our world and power and privilege and policies that impact who has what versus who doesn't. And that really triggered that passion for me. So I came to the University of Washington did an undergraduate degree in international studies, specifically focused on South Asian studies. I wanted to keep it broad and really try understand my own history as well, but wanted to go into public and global health, graduated at a time when the US economy was doing terribly. And so there were not a lot of jobs available. And my other passion is actually education and early learning education. So a lot of schools were hiring and I decided to become a Montessori school teacher. So for a couple of years, I actually ran a small in-house Montessori school and then decided to make the transition and move towards public health. And it's funny, I it was still a hard time for the economy and learned that It was going to be hard to position myself to get those jobs, but I asked my supervisor then why she had hired me, and she said, well, if you can work with 16, four to six-year-olds, you have the patience to then work with government officials, and (laughs) I... I love that. Yeah, I didn't get it at that time, and then working with a variety of people realized, yes, that makes complete sense. Right. Wow. So then you ended up doing separate studies after that? Yeah, so I spent a few years focusing on domestic health around the U.S., focused specifically on community engagement and education around HIV, biomedical prevention, research education, so things like HIV vaccines, and then decided I really wanted to focus on global health and decided to get a master's degree and wanted a change of scenery. I had been in Seattle for about eight years at that point and applied to school in London and decided to spend a year in London getting my master's degree, which was in global health and development. So spent a year there and then moved back to the US and went to DC where I worked for the US State Department on a global HIV AIDS program for a couple of years. 
Wow. So you've actually, yeah, you, you've done some travel in relation to your studies, which is great, and ended up being able to go to a few different places. So that's that's really great how that ended up intertwining in that way. Obviously, global health, that's going to also open the door to travel. I'm assuming that after that, your work began including travel. Is that true? Yes, that's right. So I had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in South Africa, specifically Durban and Johannesburg, and then also Thailand, as well as Geneva, Switzerland, just given the UN agencies that exist there. So that to me was a really great experience because it also helped really inform the work that I do and traveling to places like South Africa, for example, where there's a lot of global HIV programming that exists there, hearing from communities and experts and people that live there on what their needs are is really critical, especially to the work that we do. And so that to me was just an incredible experience and getting to see firsthand also what are some of the opportunities and the challenges that exist and how do we inform our programs so that they better serve people? So your travel really, obviously, being in global health, your travel isn't going to look like, you know, oh, I'm on vacation. But at the same time, you are getting so much of those experiences that people do want as travelers, you know, like, oh, I'm finding out more about the culture. You're really looking at very important issues that are happening and getting to know areas in a way that other people might kind of yeah, touch on, gloss over, but you're like diving into like the actual real hard issues at hand. How does that feel? Do you crave other types of travel that are more, I don't want to say light, but just like, oh, a little more vacation-like? Or or is it really like, no, I really love that I have this doorway into making a difference or, you know, understanding things, changing ways that issues and problems are approached, disease, etc. How does that feel, travel for this type of work? Yeah, I think it's both. I love the travel for work, but then I also love the travel for fun and pleasure. And I also always try make sure that for my work trips, I always do something fun and get out into the city or the area and understand it beyond the conference room or the hotel setting that I'm in. And I think what's been really helpful for me is I've had incredible colleagues, but then also friends in some of these cities who have gotten to show me around and help me understand what their life is like and what brings them joy, as well as just understanding the neighborhoods and some of the politics that exist, which is so helpful in enlightening also my experience as I travel. So for me, it's, I feel really fulfilled in that sense, but then I also 100% love the lighter, more relaxed vacation style traveling, and I definitely crave it. I feel like I'm always thinking about things as, should I buy this kitchen gadget or should I spend the money on a plane ticket? And it is 100% always it will go to the plane ticket. <laughs> yes. Avid travelers are like that. I remember, Yes, I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but I remember when I was engaged, I was like, you know, telling my husband, don't you dare spend money on that ring. Like yeah. <laughs> that needs to be saved for the honeymoon, which will be like twice as long as most people's honeymoons because yeah. travel is the travel is the diamond ring in my life, you know? Exactly. It's memorable. Yeah. It's what I always want above other things. Yes. Okay, so let's see. So you've managed to 
travel to many countries, would you say that the 40 countries, I mean, I'm sure you you obviously started traveling when you were younger, you've done travel before, has things picked up? Do you feel like you've been adding more countries lately? Or is it just, I don't know, over time, it's all just kind of accumulated? Yeah, I think the time in my life where I went to a lot of countries was when I was in London for graduate school. Just given the locale, the access, the affordable flights, using points to travel in the region, I think I always had this idea that to travel in Europe, you needed to have money. You like you really needed to have money to enjoy fine wine or dinners, etc. It was either that or backpacking, and I didn't see the in-between until I was actually there and doing it myself, and that you could find affordable areas to travel to, that meals didn't have to be expensive, that you could do a lot of activities for free and it could still be really fun. And so I think having that experience in Europe and going to a lot of different countries really helped inform also my travel style. I think in general, though, it's been a steady accumulation over the years. And I think more so now, I'm also spending a lot of time traveling in the US, especially around national parks. I think it's, for me, been a really interesting experience and trying to leverage, you know, when you only have two or three weeks of holiday, which in itself is a privilege because not everyone gets that much paid time off. How do you extend and flex some of that time so you can make the most out of a long weekend, for example? Yeah, that's a good point. Because there is, there's, there's two issues, right? There's time, there's money. Yes. But it sounds like, yeah, you work hard. You don't, you're not, you don't have tons of time off. You're not going to be traveling all the time. But you've managed to maximize the time off that you do have. And then also, I'm curious, how are you typically funding your travel? I mean, are you really doing the thing where it's like, okay, I'm traveling to this place for work. Maybe I tack on something on the side to help keep that affordable since work is paying for me to get there. Are you also saving money on your own to travel? How are you you know, making it work to hit a lot of countries, your goal of, you know, going to 50 countries, how are you making that happen? Yeah, I think a big part of it a few years ago when I was traveling to South Africa, for example, was tacking on trips to go back home to Zambia, for example, because that ticket from Seattle in itself in terms of just money and time is such a big commitment. So that to me was a great opportunity in that sense. And then in general, it's savings, picking destinations that are more affordable in that sense, where you can get a lot more bang for your buck, and then using points as well, and using credit cards, airline loyalties, etc. is for me a big part of how I fund my travel. Yeah, well, I used to always be so jealous of people who did travel at least a little bit for work because you would get those points Yes, in a big way. If you're traveling all the way to South Africa, you know, you're going to get a lot more points. And that's kind of what started my whole mile and point mania was like, I want to know how to do that without having the job that (laughs) allows me to travel. But anyway, it sounds like you've made that work for you, too. So you know how much I love the points thing. Yes. So shifting a little bit, what was one of your favorite locations or what is one of your more memorable trips? I know it's so hard when I ask travelers this because we've gone to so many places, but do you have any that stand out in your mind as like top experience for you? I've noticed when I am seeking a holiday, I either want it to be very nature focused or to have it be a city experience. I tend to crave 
one or the other, depending on where I am in my life. So if I've had a really busy few months at work that are really stressful, I want full-on quiet nature. And if I'm itching and a little bit hungry to just explore a bit more, I tend to have more city-focused holidays. So for me, in the nature-craving category, I have really loved Iceland as well as, and I am not someone who loves cold weather. Okay. And I went to Iceland in February and I loved it. Wow. I thought it was just, it was stunning. And then the second one is Namibia, which I think is incredibly underrated. It's affordable. It's stunning. It's easy to travel through. So those two come to mind. And then for the cities, one that really caught me by surprise, I wasn't expecting to love as much as I really did is Japan and is Tokyo specifically. Mm -hmm. I loved Tokyo and I was so blown away by how busy it is, but also how quiet it felt. I'm so glad you said that because that's literally the thing that stood out to all of us the first few days, especially we were like, why do we feel like we're on some calm retreat? We are in one of the biggest cities on the, you know, like this doesn't make sense. I mean, it wasn't quite like a calm retreat, but it just felt very different than say like New York. Yes. You're like, what is this peacefulness in this yes. large, large city? And everyone I came across was so incredibly kind and thoughtful and generous. And that to me was just incredible. I walked away just falling in love with the city to the point where I tell my husband, like, maybe we should move there. Maybe we can find some jobs and live in Japan for a few years. And, I, you know, I can't also forget Zambia. I think Zambia is one of my favorite places to be. And they're stunning places in country, whether it's Victoria Falls or national parks like South Luangwa and Lower Zambezi. And I think when people think of safaris, the thought is often Kenya or Tanzania or South Africa. And I think Zambia is incredibly special in that arena. I think the way we do tours and just the expertise of the guides is unlike anything I've ever experienced. So I think Zambia is very high on the list as well. Great. Yeah, actually, after talking with you about this, I'm going to look more into that because it wasn't on my list specifically, but it sounds intriguing. Yes. Okay. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing now? Because I know I kind of want to get into more current times and what your most recent travel was. So I know that you are the director of strategy at a global health organization. Do you want to speak a little bit about what you were doing? Yeah, so I am the director of strategy at Panorama Global, which we call ourselves an action tank. So we're different than a think tank, which puts out a lot of policy pieces, etc. But we really drive towards action and action towards some of the world's most pressing problems, whether that's advocating for paid leave in the U.S. or trying to get more women into office in the U.S. or global issues like having malaria on advocacy agendas in the world or supporting outbreak preparedness, for example. And so a lot of my work involves 
advocacy, stakeholder engagement, and strategy development. And currently, I focus on a couple of projects that are related to outbreak preparedness. So last year, I spent a lot of time focused on the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And for the past three or so months, my work has focused on the current COVID-19 pandemic. So related to that, I spent the full month of February in Geneva supporting UN agencies with communications efforts related to the pandemic and thinking about what are the most accurate, relevant ways in which we can communicate what this pandemic is. And at the time it wasn't declared a pandemic, but we're really closely tracking what is happening. And at that time it was primarily focused on China and that's very quickly and rapidly has changed and is now a global pandemic and a massive concern. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So that was your last big trip was related directly to the outbreak of COVID-19. So I'm sure that you're busier than ever. You know, you're here in Seattle and I'm sure you're quarantined like the rest of us or you know, doing the social isolation, social practices, social distancing practices like everyone else. What has your work looked like right now? A lot of Zoom calls, a lot of webinars, a lot of phone calls, but it is very much focused on learnings from my time in Geneva in February and looking at how has this pandemic changed? Where is it headed? And then what do we do to ensure that this doesn't happen again? And how do we support current response efforts, whether it's from R&D, so looking at vaccine development, or also looking at how do we help countries prepare, right? This is not an if situation, but a when. It's likely that every country will be hit with cases. And so how do we ensure that countries have the support systems that they need to ensure that they can contain the outbreak? And a lot of this work is not just done by me, or Panorama that is a strong partnership with multiple different groups and entities on a global and local scale. And, you know, I'm so glad there are people who have been paying attention when other, obviously I feel like a lot of people haven't. You know, it's interesting how that show came out, Pandemic. I remember when it came out, it was like January 8th or 9th or 10th or something. I remember because I was on my way to a cruise in the Caribbean, which now seems like some kind of strange miracle that I was on a cruise at all, Um, you know, Uh, but I was on my way to enjoy a cruise with my dad. I'd never been on an ocean cruise. I'd been on river cruises. But anyway, I saw that come up in the queue, Netflix, and I said, oh, that's interesting. Like no idea yet about anything. I hadn't been reading the news. I think the, you know, outbreak in Wuhan had been like a a week old, you know, I I had no idea, but I saved it. I was like, that's kind of, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. Oh, prevention of a, of a pandemic. Okay. Went away, was on the cruise when I heard about the whole situation in China around my birthday. We talked about it. Actually, Bertram was there, talked about it over dinner. I think he said something about it. Uh, We were celebrating a number of different things. My birthday, Bertram's, you know, kind of post- wedding year, you know, uh, there was like a lot, we were celebrating Martin Luther King day, but I remember us talking about that over dinner and I came home from that trip and remembered that show in the queue. 
at first I didn't want to watch it because everything was unfolding here. And I was like, I don't want to know what that says. Then I watched it and I was totally mesmerized by the amount of work certain people have been doing all along. Like this whole show was like, we, we need to heighten awareness because people are not focusing on the fact that we are really at high risk of a massive outbreak of something like this. That's going to affect the world economy. It's, you know, they knew all about this people who are tracking emergence of viruses, um, that's their entire job. You know, all of that was new to me. Honestly, I'd love to say like, oh, yeah, no, sure. I knew about that. (laughs) No, I had no idea there were people whose entire life job was to go around trying to see where viruses were emerging and how to prevent an outbreak. So I hear what you were doing. And I feel kind of the same way. Like, thank you so much for doing that work. I'm sure, though, that, you know, there must be a sense of frustration. Like, yeah, we've been all doing this work, but still people weren't, you know, the governments or whoever, like they weren't ready um, in the way that they could have been. So anyway, I just want to first say thank you for doing this work. And I think people are going to be paying a lot more attention now to what you're doing, you know, and pe- and others like you. Yeah, thanks, Lizette. I, I really appreciate that. And I think it's hard, right? It, to me, I think about it the way I think about climate change in some ways, where people have a hard time believing that it's happening or will happen and impact them until they experience it themselves. And I think what this pandemic is really doing is highlighting that everyone is going to be impacted. Whether or not you get sick, there's going to be political, social, and economic impacts of this. And something I have been thinking a lot about is I think about travel and when is the next time I'm going to see my family and loved ones? But then also, when am I going to satisfy that curiosity and wonderlust that I have? That's such an essential part of me is what's happening to the countries and the communities that depend on travel and tourism. And how do we support them in the meantime? So really taking time to still dream about where where am I going to go once all of this is done? But also thinking about, okay, what can I do now as someone who still has a job to support people and industries and companies that are focused on travel and tourism so that when we restart traveling, that they exist and they're there and they're thriving. Um, and so that's something that I'm is really top of mind for me. Yeah, that's a really important point. As travelers, how do we support the industry? I know for me, just first, you know, it seems so privileged and luxurious that I can sort of in my house here in the United States, you know, I'm I'm in the suburb of Seattle. So it's like I have all this space around me and I can isolate and I do web design. So I'm still working, totally can do that from home. My husband can't so much. He's a photographer. But anyway, mm. We're in this really good position, right? And then here I am going, should I launch the third season of my podcast? Because it's travel related. And who wants, you know, we can't travel right now. So maybe I shouldn't do this. But then I thought, no, we still need to hear about stories. And we need to keep this alive. Because for me, there was this little conundrum as a travel podcaster. That is nothing compared to people who are absolutely 100% doing this for a living in countries that aren't as privileged as we are. And I mean, I've been thinking about all kinds of people, you know, that I've met and that I, we were in Bali. We loved the guy we hired. He was our driver. 
you know, what is he doing right now? In fact, I think when I get off this podcast, I'm going to WhatsApp him and be like, how are you? You know what? Because that's just one person out of how many millions of billions I feel like people who, you know, that's his whole job was getting tourists and driving them around Bali, you know? Yep. And so what is he doing right now? You know, and then one of my best friends in Brazil, he's a taxi driver. He's not driving anywhere. I mean, he's he actually has a, like a private driver also. That's funny. Another driver. <laughs> but anyway, but he feels like my uncle. Like we're totally great friends. I have been talking to him. He's just in his house. But it's like, you know, his daughter had to pay his rent. He's never had to have that happen in his life. I'm practically like, you know, we have an apartment. I'm practically like, okay, say the word. I'm going to move him into this apartment that I normally rent out to tourists on Airbnb. You know, because how do I help? You know, it's like, what can I do? What can I do for these people who are my friends and people I really care about who who can't work? So anyway, that's where I've been at it. And I feel very lucky where I sit. But you're right. This is the question. You know, we don't know when we can travel again. But how do we support people in the meantime? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think we've seen a surge of support within our cities right, of how do we support our local economy and our local business. And for me, I've been thinking about a couple of months ago in January, my husband and I spent two or three weeks in Morocco and met incredible people there. And we met a young tour operator who had just started his business and was doing so well in terms of reviews and just the feedback that he was getting and was just on this upward trajectory. And I think about what this will do to his business and his model. And that to me is, that's hard. It is hard. It's about thinking, what can we do? And how how do we as a travel community galvanize around this and think about what are ways where we can have pulled funding to support various people so that they're okay and that they can come back after all of this? Yeah, well, I I would love to be part of brainstorming that if you ever form anything, you know, specific group or I don't know, because I feel like travelers are gathering right now online and talking about just sort of how they're getting through it. And I know also travel industry people or, you know, I'm thinking more of kind of the people I know mostly through the U.S. and maybe some Europeans, you know, we're talking about, oh, we're podcasters or oh, we're bloggers. I mean, it's not my main my main income at all. Not not even close. I don't know if I'm getting any income from this, actually. <laughs> um, but, you know, many are. And so, you know, from their blogs or whatever, the influencers and all that kind of stuff. So content creators, I think is a better yeah. term these days. You know, yes, that's good. But I think there's a lot of people who aren't even part of that online reality, you know, that they don't even have the luxury of that kind of access. And they literally are, like you said, that's an angle that's really important. How can we maybe pool funding or do something? And maybe it, there's so many places it's affecting everywhere in the world and that can feel so overwhelming. So is it like, okay, maybe we have a place we know and love and people we know and that we can sort of tap in, you know, if we are all over the world, travelers are thinking that way, we may find ways to, you know, do something here, do something over there. Like I just mentioned Bali or I mentioned Brazil, you know, maybe those are my areas, but it is a conundrum. But I also think about future travel and thinking, well, whenever we can travel, I want to brave that because I do want to be part of supporting those those folks, you know, by saying whenever it's safe, let's get travel rolling again when we can, obviously. Well, and I think the challenge right now, too, is just how unpredictable this situation and scenario is. We have no idea how long it's going to last. And so what that extended impact will be, how long it will take for people 
and communities to recover. And so I like what you said in terms of what is our individual role and what's the impact that we can have through the relationships that already exist and really investing resources in enabling that so that at least there is some support. Yeah. And it is a big unknown. And like you said, unpredictable, we can't there's going to be no quick, easy answer or whatever, but just thinking of that way. In fact, our conversation today really has shifted something in me a little bit where, you know, it's like, wait, yeah, what can I do? Besides the fact that I'd already thought like, I'm going to put my friend in my apartment. Like, it was like a very tangible thing. Yeah. You know, if I have to, or if he needs that, he's not asking for that, but I'm going to offer that, you know, when it comes to that, if and when. So that's one little example, but spreading that into a bigger idea of how can we create some kind of funding or something. I don't know. And your work isn't so much about that particular piece, right? Like your job isn't thinking of the travel industry and how to help that. You're looking at like outbreak prevention and how are we going to manage this? But does it include, you think, some of that too? Because it's supporting communities too, or I don't know. I mean, you know, indirectly, I think it has an impact on every aspect. So when we're looking at funding right now, the focus is also because countries are being hit so hard, especially where we are here in the US, but then also Europe specifically, there's a lot of focus on funding your own backyard, right? And what projections are showing is that come May, Africa and countries in Africa are going to be hit really hard. And so part of my work right now is thinking about, okay, what are some of the measures that we can take now? What are some of the support systems that we can build now to prevent severe impact, right? And a part of that is, okay, is there funding mechanisms that are more efficient and faster in enabling that? And, mm-hmm. you know, the health of the country is so critical in everything that we do and having a thriving economy, including a tourism industry, etc. So I think indirectly that work has an impact in that sense. I think it's hard. It's really hard to, because like you said, the scale of it is so massive. So at the risk of trying to do everything, I think you sometimes do nothing. And so just starting is so critical and recognizing that every approach has to be holistic in some ways. Yep. Well, I feel like I could just ask you a bunch more questions, but I <laughs> think we probably should start wrapping up. But I, what was going to be your next trip before all this happened? Oh, I had my heart set on Sri Lanka. Okay. I have never been. And I was craving some beach, some mountains, some tea estates, and some really good food. So yeah. Sri Lanka for me was top of mind. Okay, so that that might be the next one when you can travel, one of the places you may try to go. Yes. What's on your list, Lizette? Oh, gosh. Well, I was supposed to go to Ireland. I've been there before, but only for two days in Dublin, so I don't really count that fully. We were going to take a trip around Ireland to visit some of my ancestral, I mean, I'm actually, according to Ancestry DNA, I'm supposedly like 35%. I mean, it does match what I know about my what my background is. Um, So visiting some places in Northern Ireland. So I did rebook for October. Don't know if that'll work, but whatever, we'll see. That is one of my plans. And Albania, Sicily, and eventually Africa. I've never been to the African continent. So I was Uh, planning to go in 2021 
to South Africa, Mozambique, and then a friend invited me to Senegal. That's a lot for you know, <laughs> fly all over the place, but we'll see. Those are my upcoming travel dreams um, whenever we can travel again. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to keep hope alive. By the way, one of my, actually the closing guest for season two, she is in Sri Lanka. So if you need to connect <laughs> with anyone, yeah. I don't know if she'll still be there, uh, Nikki, but anyway, just as an FYI, I think she's there right now. That's amazing. Yeah, I would love to take you up on that. And fingers crossed that for all of us, we see an end to this soon. Yeah, I certainly hope so. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Where can people follow your travel adventures when they restart? <laughs> and even just whatever you're doing until then. Yes. So I don't have a big web presence, but I am on Instagram, which is where I post most of my photos. And my handle is Abote Road. So O-B-O-T-E-R-O-A-D. And that is the name of the road that I grew up on in Lusaka. Oh, I love that. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I really enjoyed talking with you and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Likewise, Lizette. Thank you so much. Want to check out the resources and links mentioned during the episode? Head over to the show notes at jetsetlizette.com forward slash episode 45. That's jetsetlizette.com forward slash episode 45. Lizette is spelled L-I-S-E-T-T-E. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Tell a friend to tell a friend. I really appreciate you spreading the word as it helps to grow the show. Thanks so much for tuning in and getting some travel inspiration. I'll be back with more in a couple weeks. Stay healthy, stay safe. And until then, remember, life is short, travel more.